Uh, this morning, what we're going to do is continue in our series, Ultimate, and we're going to talk about Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that right now. Uh, you can also follow along on our mobile app. If you just go to App Store or Google Play Store and just search HMCC, there's going to be a section called Sermon Notes. And you can actually follow along, and there will be blanks with the notes in there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, also you can turn to someone next to you. Hopefully they'll share with you. If they don't, then just pray for them, okay? Just pray for them. Uh, what we want to do is, as we continue in this series, we're now in the second chapter. In the first couple of parts, we talked about the excellencies of Christ, right? In the beginning, Paul was sharing his heart for the Colossian church. And he went into this whole poem about how majestic and how amazing, how beautiful, and how Christ is exalted about above all. And last week, we talked about how God and Christ is preeminent and predominant over all things. And today, as we continue on, everything is linked and connected together, and everything that Paul has said up to this point is going to lead into helping us understand why Paul continues in what he says in these few verses. And as I begin, I, I wanted just to ask us a question first, just to get us thinking. Is Have you ever watched a news broadcast or gained some new information that totally changed the way that you live? Whether it was about like some food advisory or it was a new workout experience, whether it was you know a, a new way of doing business that totally changed the way that you saw life, that you lived out your life. Uh, I mean, for a kid, uh, when I was a young, like my mom would tell me things like, oh, if you eat the seeds in the watermelon, then there's going to be watermelon growing in your stomach. And so I never, ever ate the watermelon seeds growing up. You know, so it, it changed my life in a small way. Uh, later on in life, as my, my mom has this, uh, I think many of us, we, our parents have these WeChat groups, some of us who have uh, Chinese families, and, and our moms are in these like humongous WeChat groups, and then every WeChat group, they get sent all these like articles about health and nutrition and stuff like that. It's crazy. I don't even know what, what goes on in those groups. I don't want to know, but uh, I got, my mom got one of these articles that said nonstick pans. You know the, the pans with the, the coating that makes it really easy to like cook vegetables? It said, the chemicals are bad for you. And they're going to get into your food, and it's going to cause you to get poisoned and things like that. And from that point on, my mom switched to all stainless steel pans. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. She was like, you should switch to stainless steel pans too. I was like, why? And then <clears throat> like two weeks later, or a couple weeks later, she switched back to nonstick pans because the stainless steel pans were all burnt at the bottom, right? And it's no better than the nonstick pans. But I realized there's so many things in our lives that cause us to make lifestyle changes. Information... Uh, or different things that we learn or were passed on that really force us to reevaluate how we live. And one of the things that I was forced to reevaluate recently was my consumption of McDonald's. Okay? I don't eat that many McDonald's, but once in a while, you know, when you're craving like a burger or my favorite is the Mc, was it McFlurry and also the cone, oh, it's so good. Just like, it just hits the spot, right? It's only like four and a half Hong Kong dollars, so it's like not that bad. And, and once in a while, I'll just stop by and just grab one. But after I watched this video, I got some new information. I was like, I don't know if I can ever eat McDonald's ever again, okay? So I want to challenge some of you. Some of you are diehard McDonald's fans. It doesn't matter what you know or what you experience. You will be committed to McDonald's for the rest of your life. You're more committed to McDonald's than Jesus, okay? That's a problem. 
But I want to challenge I want to show you this video and see how committed you are to McDonald's after you learn about this. So why don't we go ahead and watch this video? All right, how many people are still going to eat McDonald's? <laughs> we have some diehard fans. I don't know about you, but as I was thinking, I think there was that one phrase in the video that said, touch screens, most of the bacteria are harmless. But what about the parts that are not, right? It's kind of concerning. I'm like, I never want to use the touch screens ever again. Honestly, I, I think for many of you, you still might eat McDonald's, and that's your prerogative. That's your choice. But I was watching this video. I was like, I don't ever want to eat McDonald's ever again, or fast food for that matter. If there's all that stuff inside, like, how can I, how can I even imagine putting all that into my body? And there's something about knowing something, right? When, once you know something, it's like you can't unknow it. I, I, I've talked to friends who, you know, they, they've been like, hey, have you ever watched the movie Super Size Me? Some of us, we watch that movie, and it's all about how, like, McDonald's is horrible for your body. And I have some friends, they love McDonald's. And then I'm like, have you ever watched Super Size Me? You should watch it. They're like, no, I don't ever want to watch it. I want to eat my McDonald's in peace, you know? <laughs> They're like, you can't, once you know something, you can't unknow it. And then once you know it, that causes some kind of response or some kind of lifestyle change or behavior change in our lives. And for me, I would stop eating McDonald's because it doesn't reflect what's good for me and my body and my lifestyle choices into the future. My question is for us, if, if McDonald's, if food choices, if lifestyle behaviors and habits are true in this way, then why not for our spiritual lives? Shouldn't it be the same with knowing Christ? Like, if we know about Christ and who he is and what it is that he has done, wouldn't we choose to refrain or not do certain things or do other things because we understand who he is? Wouldn't that dramatically change how we live our lives every step, every day, every moment that we live? The reality of who Jesus is should make a dramatic impact on who we are and how we live out day to day. And I'm wondering if that will actually help us to understand and live out the fullness of life that Christ has promised. And so I want to give us the one thing. I know there's some technical difficulties, but uh, let's try to move forward with this passage. I want to give us the one thing. The one thing is stop living a life that doesn't reflect how Christ made us alive. Stop living a life that doesn't reflect how Christ made us alive. I know it's a double negative there, but in this passage, we want to unpackage why Paul is kind of sharing this with us. He's telling us to refrain, to stop living in a particular way because it does not show, it does not reveal what Christ has done in each and every single one of our lives. And so I want to share two points, two pieces of knowledge, two pieces of information that Paul gives us for us to reflect how Christ made us alive. The first point is that we receive new life. We receive new life. The first thing we want to go through is read verses 8 to 10. So hopefully you've turned to it uh, in Colossians 2. If you haven't, go ahead and look on with someone next to you. And we'll read it for us. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule 
and authority. All rule and authority. So in these first two verses, we want to talk about how we receive new life. And Paul's first instructions is, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Essentially what he's saying is, don't be swindled. Don't be led astray by all the false teachings of everything else that has been going on in the Colossians church. And something that's been happening is there have been a lot of heresies. There have been a lot of false teachings that were attacking the Colossians. And if you know Paul's heart, even starting from chapter 1, you realize that Paul cared about the Colossians so deeply. He loved them. He wanted them to grow fully in Christ. And we see this in chapter 1, verses 28 to 29, the New Living Translation. It says, So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That is why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. So Christ, early on, he's saying, this is who you are, and I care about you so much, and I dearly want you to be made perfect in Christ. And so knowing Paul and his affections and his cares will help us to understand why now he's warning the Colossians, okay, there are these things that are happening. There are these false truths they're attacking you. And Paul goes through and he wants to address these couple things. So what are the main weapons that Paul gives against the heresy? What is that truth that Paul says, this is how you're going to combat those empty philosophies? Paul gives us kind of a thesis statement in verses 9 to 10. If you don't know what a thesis statement, it's kind of like your one thing, right? your main point. Just think back to secondary school. Okay? It's like after you write an essay, then you have a thesis statement. That's the main point that Paul is trying to say. This is the main thing. All right, in verses 9 to 10, I'll read it in the New Century Version. It says, All of God lives fully in Christ, even when Christ was on earth. And you have a full and true life in Christ, who is ruler over all rulers and powers. Key phrase here. It says, you have a full and true life in Christ. You have a full and true life in Christ. He's saying, we have this new life. It is different. It is true. It's not false. It's full. There's something different about that. And so in the following verses, Paul begins to explain how that's true. And so there are two reasons for how we have this new full life in Christ. The first reason is that we are cut off from sin. First reason that Paul gives is that we were cut off from sin. Let's read verses 11 to 12. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let me read verse 11 in the New Living Translation. It says, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Some of us are getting a little uncomfortable now, okay? It's biblical. Circumcision is biblical, and we need to talk about that because it's an important symbol of being connected to Christ and set apart from the world. For some of you who don't know, circumcision was something instituted in the Old Testament. When Abraham first met God, God gave Abraham the new covenant and said, you must be circumcised. And that was a symbol for the people of God, for the people of Israel, that they were set apart. Genesis 17, verse 10 and 14 in the ESV, it says, This is my covenant, God is speaking to Abraham, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you should be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male 
who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so what does this all mean? So why is Paul now here in the book of Colossians now referring to circumcision? What does this have anything to do with what Paul is talking about, how we are cut off from our sinful nature? What's the connection? Well, in the Old Covenant, let's look at the Old Covenant. What does circumcision mean? The foreskin was a symbol of the flesh of worldly people. So what the people of Israel had at that time was two options. Okay? They had two options. They could choose. Either you could get circumcised and cut the foreskin off, right, physically. That was a symbol. Or you could get cut off from the Israelite people. Right? We just read in Genesis, it said, any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Right? So they either could get circumcised or they were to get cut off from their people. They had no choice. They had to, they couldn't be in the middle. They had to choose either or. And then in the new covenant, Paul presents us two similar options. Or he actually infers these two options by what he says. Either we could be spiritually circumcised with Christ or we are cut off from God. Right? When he says in the NLT, he says, Christ performed the spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of our sinful nature. If we are not cut away with our sinful nature, in other passages, Paul talks about how we cannot be with God because God is a holy God. And so right here, Paul is now using this symbol of circumcision to say, there's only two options. Either you're going to be with God, and you're going to be circumcised spiritually, either your sinful nature is going to be cut off, or you're going to be in the world. You're going to be without God. You're going to be, with, uh, you're going to be in a godless reality. You have no relationship with him. There's no in-between. You cannot have one foot in the world, one foot outside of the world. How does this spiritual circumcision happen? Well, when we just read in verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The way that we are spiritually circumcised is because we identify with Christ. And when Christ died, we also died with him so that when we were raised to life, we have this new life. Our old fleshly nature is dead. It is cut off because we've died. And we have this new spiritual life in Christ as he raised us from the grave. And so what does it actually look like for our sinful nature to be cut off? Because if, if I'm honest, and for many of us in our experience, we're like, you know what, we sin all the time. We, we still struggle. There's still so many things that we do that we don't want to do, but does that mean, like, I'm not Christian? Does that mean that if, if I still struggle with sin, does that mean my sinful nature hasn't been cut off? Not necessarily. I think for me, that was a, a huge struggle when I was... I think even uh, young in my faith, and still is a struggle today. I remember just going through the ups and downs, especially when I was a year two or year three when I was an undergrad, and I struggled so many times to the point where I was really doubting whether I was a true believer. Because I would read passages like this about how the sinful nature is cut off. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now slaves to righteousness. I was like, what does that mean, God? I have no idea. And, and, and I was thinking about those verses like, you know, but I find myself giving into sin over and over and over again. You know, I, I keep on falling. I keep on going back to my old ways. I keep on arguing with my family and my parents. I keep on, like, putting 
like so much identity and, and how much I can perform. So much to the point where my uh, LCG at that time, or he was uh, kind of my mentor figure as well, I, I was just sharing this with him and like, I don't know why it is, but whenever I share my struggles, like people don't usually share the most encouraging things to me. They always like, they just give me these truths that are just like, what the heck did you just say? What he said to me was, he said, you know what? It is like a miracle that you're still a Christian right now. I was like, what? Like, why? How is that encouraging anywhere? Are you supposed to be saying I should have fallen away? You know, are you saying that I should be like off on my own doing my own thing right now? And I was like, what, what do you mean by that? Am I supposed to be offended? Am I supposed to be encouraged? And he was saying, no, what I mean by that is the fact that you're still following Christ, the fact that you're still wrestling, the fact that you're still struggling every single day because you see the sinful part of you, but you don't want to be like that. You want to be like Christ. That really shows that there's still at least this desire, this spiritual nature in you that's connecting you to God. And if it wasn't God working in you, that's the miracle. If it wasn't God working in you, he was saying, then, yeah, then you would have fallen away by now. But it is because God has worked in you. He's cut off that sinful nature that you still have this desire to follow after God day after day, no matter how many times you've struggled or you've fallen or you've had a really hard time. And I'm wondering how many of us, we, we, we were in that position where we're you know, struggling and we're, we're asking God, like, God, why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult for us to like, be good or be pure or be unsinful, for lack of a better word? And it's because we still have this sinful nature that's in war between our bodies. Paul says that in Romans 7. Right? I think some of us, we know that passage where he says, you know, the things I, I want to do, I cannot do, but the things I don't want to do, this I keep, I find myself doing. And so there's this sinful nature and there's this spiritual nature in us. But what Paul means by the uh, sinful nature is cut off. He's saying you are no longer controlled by that sinful nature. It doesn't rule over you anymore. There should always be this desire at the very least to say, God, I want to be like you. Even though I can't, even though I fall away over and over again, I want to be like you. And that causes us to go to this cycle of repentance, to say, God, forgive me again. I'm sorry that I've gone this way. And recommitting to say, God, now I want to be like you again. That process should be there for every single one of us as we are in Christ. If there's no desire to be like Christ, if there's not a single tinge in your heart, even guilt, sometimes guilt is there because you know you're doing something wrong. But being able to say, God, I don't want to be this way. If there's nothing like that, then I would challenge us. Maybe our hearts have gone so hard. Maybe we need to do a heart check. Maybe we need to reevaluate where our faith is at, what it's really based on. Is it really because we have this real relationship with Christ? Or are we just playing church? We're just doing all the outward motions, but we never really had a relationship with God to begin with. But I'm believing that Christ said that as long as we trust him, we have faith in him, we we said, God, you are my father, and I am saved because of your blood through Jesus. It says here that through baptism, which is not, not just the physical, the physical baptism that we do on Easter is a symbol, right? But the baptism that God does in our lives through the Holy Spirit, he, he causes us to die with Christ, 
and now we are alive with him. And so every little inkling of us that wants to be like God into the future is a symbol that our sinful nature is cut off. We're no longer bound or constrained by that. And so praise God. Every time you sin, you fall, but you still have this desire, praise God. Praise God that, yes, God, I I still want to be like you. I'm sorry, and I can't do it on my own, but I still want to be like you. That is the greatest gift. That is the miracle of God working in each and every single one of our lives. And the problem is, some of, of us, we still want the best of both worlds. Remember how we talked about how circumcision, you have a choice. You can either either be circumcised. You can actually understand that, yes, I am circumcised spiritually, right? Or I can say, you know what, God, I, I, I just want the world. Some of us, we're in between. We have one foot in the world, one foot out of the world. We still want the sinful nature. Some of us, we find ourselves still pursuing after those things that God already says will always lead to death. Whether it's like money, future, finances, Those are not bad things of themselves, but we make them our idols. People's approval of us, our parents' approval of us, that comfortable life. And in many ways, we're still choosing the sinful nature. We're still choosing that direction. And God is saying, you cannot have both. Either you serve God or you serve the other thing. There is no in-between. And if you choose the other, if you choose that sinful nature, then there's going to be real consequences to that. Matthew 8, verse 35 to 36 in the Amplified, it says, For whoever wishes to save his life in this world will eventually lose it through death. But whoever loses his life in this world for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it from the consequences of sin and separation from God. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world with all its pleasures and forfeit his soul? What does it benefit any of us to keep choosing that sinful self over and over and over again? It doesn't. If we choose that, then essentially what we're saying to God is, God, I don't care about you. And our soul, that is the very thing that we're just willing to give up for Christ instead of Christ. I know many of us, we don't actually think, we don't think consciously like, yo, God, I don't want eternal life, and so therefore I'm going to choose these things. I, I, don't, I don't think any of us are like that, consciously making that decision. But implicitly, by the way that we live, we make some of those decisions, right? Some of us students, midterms are over, praise God. No, they're still going. Some of you are, okay, just starting. <laughs> just starting. Midterms are taking over. And you're in that point, or the, there's these projects, and, and and, and your life group leader messages you, hey, are you going to come to that hangout? Or are you going to help out with you know, this thing? Are you going to get that birthday cake? Can you help out with the fresh, fresh, refreshments? Like, no, I can't. There's so many other things to do. Uh, no, I'm just gonna, not going to do anything. Or, or maybe, at the very least, hopefully you share something. But many of us, we don't do anything. We, we just go MIA. It's called missing in action blue ticks, or we we just leave it gray ticked. We don't even read the message. We just want to avoid everything. And say, you know, God, this is our excuse. God, you called me to be a student, right? Because you called me to be a student, then I I need to be faithful with my studentship. I have to be faithful with my studies, my grades. 
God, don't you want to be faithful as a student? That's why I'm here, right? My parents are spending thousands of dollars to send me to this amazing institution. I'm not going to say which university it is, but the best institution in Hong Kong. (laughs) And we begin to rationalize and justify why it is that we say, oh, this is important. And not that your school is not important. But I'm wondering how many of us are willing to admit and confess that the reason why we feel so anxious and overwhelmed is because schools are idle. I'm not saying you should drop everything for school just so you could do something for church. But my challenge to you is, are you escaping or making excuses or rationalizing why you feel like you have to spend that time? And have you dealt with that sinful nature? Or are you still saying, God, I want to try to choose both. I still want one foot in one and one foot in the other. And I still think that somehow I can get both. You've never really dealt with that in your heart. Single working adults, you're not off the hook either. Whether it's that promotion. I know that after Chinese New Year, what happens? Chinese New Year happens, you get that bonus. You start looking for new jobs. The grass is greener on the other side. But you know that new job is not going to allow you to be faithful with the things that God has called you to. Or these other trips with your friends or other things that are competing for your time. But God, you know God has called you to a certain aspect. But there are just other these worldly things, this vacation that you really wanted. And you're rationalizing, God, I, I deserve a break. God, don't you want me to make more money so that I can give more to the church? Doesn't that glorify you? But you've never really dealt with that sinful motivation in your heart. Because you still have one foot in the world and one foot in the church or with Christ. And not once have we dealt with that sinful nature inside of us. It says, actually, the reason why we're doing this is not because we really are doing all things for God. It's because we're doing it for ourselves. My challenge is for us to deal, to call that sinful nature out for what it really is. And to repent of it. Not ever, not, not, not saying that, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be perfect and I'm never gonna sin again. We're gonna sin again. We're gonna fall short again. But at the very least to say, God, if I am confronted with sin, God, let me admit it, let me confess it, and let me give me a, a new desire to say, I don't wanna keep sinning again. Cause I have died with you. You have given me new life. My sinful nature has been cut off. So let me not live in that continually. That's the first thing that Paul mentions. We are cut off from sin. The second one that he mentions is that we are forgiven and restored. Let's continue on in verses 13 to 14. It says, And you, who were made dead in your trespasses and trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul talked about, in that first couple of verses, how we were cut off from sin because of baptism. And now he repeats the same thing, saying that we have new life. In verse 13, it says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. So Paul is essentially saying, you have new life again. Which, when I was first reading this, I was like, God, why do I need new life again? Why 
is there another new life? Why am I being made alive in a different way? Why isn't being cut off from sin and baptism enough? Let's see why Paul talks about that. We notice that Paul says that we are dead in your trespasses, or you are dead in your trespasses. And he's talking about sins that we've committed already, sins that have been there that already bear consequences. And Paul is saying that we are dead because of those things. When we, when we sin, there ought to be a punishment. That punishment is death in God's equation. And what he's saying is just because your sinful nature is cut away doesn't mean you're free to go. Just because you commit to not sinning again, just because you commit to repenting again, doesn't mean that God shouldn't punish you for the very thing that you already have done. Like some of us, when we were kids, I don't know how you dealt with like when your parents got angry, but usually what I would do is I would, you know, after I did something wrong, I would go up to my mom or my dad and I would be like, Mom, Dad, I'll never do it again. You know, don't punish me, please, you know. But then they would still spank me, right? Like, I don't know how many of you, like, when, you're, when you did that with your parents, they're like, oh, don't worry, okay, I won't, I won't punish you, I won't spank you. If you had those kind of parents, God bless you, you know, it's, it's amazing. But most of the time what happens, just because you say, I'm never going to do it again, doesn't mean they're not going to spank you, right? It doesn't work that way. You, you still made a mess, or you still, like, did something wrong, and you still deserve to be punished for that. doesn't matter how many times you say, oh, I'm not going to do it again in the future, you still did something. It's just like a criminal in court. Let me explain it in a different way for some of us. That it will help us to understand. Like, if, if, if there's some criminal on trial and that person committed a crime, he goes up to the judge and he says, Judge, I plead to never murder anyone ever again. Would you expect that judge to say, okay, you can go free now? No. It doesn't make any sense. The person that committed a crime, for that crime, they have to pay the punishment for that crime. Doesn't matter what they say they're going to do in the future. Doesn't matter how many times they say, I promise, I swear by my McDonald's eating habits, I will never eat McDonald's again. Doesn't matter how many times you say that, because you ate McDonald's that one time, you're going to be punished for that, right? Your body is going to get punished for that in your health. The only solution for the death that you ought to die because of your trespasses is if someone else dies in your place, forgives you by dying in your place. Does that make sense? You're following? The only way that we can get free from the punishment is if we get forgiveness from someone. Someone else who is able to take our place to say, you no longer have to pay that punishment that you committed for that crime. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul talks about. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, those legal demands that say if you committed a crime, you ought to have death. He says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus was the one who paid the price for our punishment that we should have paid. And because of that, that was his forgiveness. That was the means that, by which he forgave us. And that is why we have life. Because we're no longer having to pay that punishment of death. We have now life because of Jesus. And that forgiveness was costly, something that we don't often think about. I like how uh, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. 
He says, God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. No one who is seriously wrong can just forgive the perpetrator. But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness, then, is costly. All forgiveness is costly. And the greatest cost for our sin was Jesus on the cross, nails in his hand, thorns on his brow, the piercing of his side. That was the cost for our lives. And I'm hoping that there's something in us when we realize that this forgiveness was so costly, causes us to be like, man, I don't want to live this way anymore. There's something about it when we're forgiven by someone, we're like, I don't want to continue in the same way that I've always been. I don't want to repeat the same things over and over again. That's the new life that Jesus is talking about, is when we are forgiven so deeply and we realize how great of a cost it was it costed for us to have this life, then we're no longer wanting to live that same life over again. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but out of this thankfulness, this joy, this like saying, God, I can't believe you did this for me. How can I continue in the same way that I've always been in? And many of us, I know we want to experience this forgiveness. We want to live out of this. But the problem is, many of us, we still live as if Christ has never forgiven us. We're still living as if we have to merit a relationship with Christ. As if, like, Christ has never forgiven us. I think for some of us, I I know for many of us who uh, we receive Christ for the first time in our church, we've come to know Christ, uh, this is maybe not as relevant because we can't really understand. But for those of us, we grew up in the church. We've been doing the Bible studies. We've been going to Sunday service since we were in our mother's womb. Uh, some of us, we've served in our youth groups before. Some of us, we're leaders now. We're going on missions. We're part of ministry team. We do every single thing possible in our church so that we can somehow develop in our relationship with God. But the problem is every single one of those things has been conditioned as something that we do to somehow merit or deserve God's love. I don't know how many of you have watched this movie called Shawshank Redemption. Really, really good movie. I recommend that you watch it. I watched it for the first time, I think, a year or two ago. And after just not watching it for so long, I was like, man, I have to watch this movie. And I understood why it was such a good movie. And um, if you haven't watched it, I'm sorry. I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, but (laughs) there's this movie, um, Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. And essentially what they do is there's this one person who gets thrown into jail. And most of the movie is their time in prison. And actually, some of the people are there for 20, 30, 40 years. And throughout the movie, you begin to hear this theme of the the inmates talking about how they've been in jail for so long, they can't imagine what it's like to be outside of jail anymore. They can't imagine what life is like outside of prison. In fact, in the movie, one of the inmates actually um, gets out of jail. He's granted uh, parole finally. He gets out. And then, okay, spoiler alert, if you don't want to hear it, you can close your ears. But <laughs> after he gets out of jail, because he's been in jail for so long, after he gets out and he's trying to live a normal life, what does he do? He hangs himself. 
he commits suicide because he cannot stand living in the new world because he is so used to the old way of life in prison. That's his whole life. And he can't imagine living outside of that in any way, shape, or form. And for some of us, we've grown up somehow trying to earn God's love for so long in our lives that to somehow live freely forgiven, given this gift of forgiveness that you didn't earn, deserve, or do anything to merit, like, it's like foreign language to you. You don't even know what to do with it. And it's so weird or foreign that you're like, I, I don't want to, every time you experience this forgiveness, you're like, I don't know what to do with it. You run back to like just trying to do things and earn your way to salvation again. I mean, I, I've been through this so many times. I remember talking with one of my friends and I was, I was in a period of my life where I was so overwhelmed and I was like doing all these things for church. I was leading, I was doing life, I was doing Bible studies. I was doing every single thing I possibly could for church. I was praying and reading the Bible. And I just felt so empty. And, and I was feeling so stressed and so overwhelmed. And one of my friends, he was just asking me questions. And he was like, why are you so stressed out? Why are you so overwhelmed? This is not the life that Christ has given to you. You're, you're forgiven. You don't, you don't have to do anything for him. So why is it that you feel this pressure to? And I was like, no, I just feel like I have to, you know, like, I have to lead life. No, the Bible study is not going to leave itself, you know. Someone's got to do it. And then he asked me this. I don't know. Again, people always like calling me out in weird ways. He says, he said, if you don't, if you don't do that Bible study, are people going to fall away? I was like, maybe. <laughs> I was like, but in my head, I was like, oh, you know, you know, I like, I like, maybe. Well, I, I wanted to say yes, but I knew I shouldn't say yes. And he's like, are people going to lose their salvation because you don't do something? And I was just honest with myself, you know what? I can't say yes. And he's like, yeah, because you're not God. And, and pretty much what he's trying to help me to see is that nothing that I do is somehow going to merit or earn God's love in any way. And nothing that I don't do or that I should be doing is going to change God's kingdom in the greater scheme of things. But I was so bent on like feeling like I had to do this. And I think what I realized from that moment was, you know what, God? I just, I'm just not okay with just being totally forgiven and not having to do anything. And the reason why I'm so overwhelmed is because I feel like I'm not good enough, not, like I'm not performing well enough. And that's where all the anxiety and stress comes from. I'm wondering, so many of us, like, we, we, we feel this obligation or we feel this pressure. We feel like we have to do all these things for God. You don't have to do anything for God. God doesn't need you for anything. Some of us, we think that we're so indispensable. Whether it's, you know, you have to do that birthday cake for life. You don't even know. Your life group has, your life group leader prepared a, a backup birthday cake in case you didn't do it. <laughs> Some of us, we think somehow that if we don't do this, then Christ's kingdom is going to fall apart. It's not. You're not that important. And what we fail to realize is that when we are forgiven and we are given this privilege, why is it that you're doing the things that you did? It's because you signed up for it. Because you chose to do it. And when we realize that, we realize we don't have to do anything. But everything that we do for God is because we want to. It totally changes the way that we see our relationship with Christ and all the things that he asks us to do 
in the context of our church, in the context of our life group, in the context of our workplace, in the context of our missions project. Everything changes. You're no longer overwhelmed, bitter, about all the things that you have to do somehow that you can't do all these things. You blame other people and circumstances for it. Quit blaming other people. Recognize that you've received this forgiveness. Recognize that you have this new life. And if we know this, we know that we are cut off from that sinful nature and realize that we're forgiven, that's going to allow us to realize that we have this new life in Christ. Let's move on to the second point. Not only have we received new life, but we are responsible for our lives. We are responsible for our lives. Just a quick poll, okay? Show of hands. How many of you have given someone a gift? Something that they could use or wear, and that later on that person never used it? Quick show of hands, yes? Okay, some of you are, okay, these are all the bitter people, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't have to raise your hands for this one, but how many of you are, are that people or that person who's gotten a gift but you've never used it before? You never wore it, okay? Honest confession, that's me. <laughs> that is me, and I'm sorry for if I've if I sinned against you in that kind of way. <laughs> I am notorious with this, especially with clothing. The number one gift that people give to me is new clothes. I wonder why, because there's something. <laughs> There's something about the things that I wear, the choices I make, fashion sense, that people tend to give me new clothes, okay? Uh, and, and people always ask me, they're like, why don't you wear nice clothes? They're like, dude, is it like you don't have new clothes? Like, do you not want to spend money on clothes? And then usually I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the reason. And then if someone who knows me pretty well, if they hear me say that, they're like, no, that's not true. You have a lot of nice clothes. You just never wear them, you know? I'm like, oh, crap, you got me. I wanted to share, share with you some of my new clothes, okay? <laughs> okay. All right, so this, this is my closet, okay? On the left side, these are new pants that I've never worn, <laughs> okay? Some of them are, like, oversized, and I never want to wear them, but um, these are new pants, and there's probably, like, seven, seven pairs of pants on the left side. On the right side, so there's one pair of pants on the right side as well. On the right side are new sweaters, I remember getting some of those sweaters back when I was a year two or year three in undergrad. So some of those sweaters are like 12 or 13 years old. And some of those sweaters I've never, ever worn before. Literally never, ever worn before. Okay, next, next picture. These are my dress shirts. These are my dress shirts. And people are like, why don't you wear dress shirts ever? Is it because you don't have any? No, I actually have a lot, okay? And some of them you can't see because they're squished in between the other ones. Uh, and and I, you've probably never seen me wear some of these before. I'm wearing some of them right now, okay? I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to be teachable. <laughs> this is the problem. I have a lot of nice clothes. I never wear it. And I still live the old life. <laughs> The beau back in middle school who wears sweatpants and like t-shirt everywhere. I still live that life and I never live the new life of these new clothes. And that's why people call me a bum. You know, that's why people like look at me and they don't take me seriously. Right? That's why I'm so thankful that I work in CHK in the university so I don't have to wear nice clothes. I don't have to dress up in that kind of way. <laughs> Honest confession, okay? And the reason why I share this is not because I want to share all my new clothes. You can, you can move this slide. 
But this is the very issue that we have with our relationship with Christ. It's not like we don't have these truths or these understandings of who Christ is or what, what he did. The problem is we never put those things on in our lives. Does that make sense? Like every single one of us, there are truths in God's word. There's realities of who Christ is and what he's done in our lives that we just never ever appropriated in our lives. That means we never ever claimed that to be true and we've never lived in light of those truths. That's why in our church also often we say that we're functional atheists. You're like, what? I'm not atheist. I believe in Jesus. No, you're a functional atheist because the way that you live your life doesn't represent the reality of who Christ is and what you say you believe in the Bible. And that's what Paul is trying to get at in these few verses. And that's why we are responsible. Christ cannot do that for us. Christ died for us, yes. Christ gave us life, life, yes. But he cannot force us to live the life in light of who he is. Otherwise, we're just going to be robots. He gave us choice. It's on us. It's our responsibility. Let's read verses 16 to 23 and finish off with this passage. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or in drink, or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul, in these verses, now he's saying, in the first passage, he talks about these are the realities, these are the things that Christ has done in you. And so now he's saying, therefore, that word therefore is really important. He's saying, now in light of those things, therefore, what is it that we do? And he gives some of these things for the Colossians church. Remember that we talked about earlier on that there were heresies, there were false truths, that people were trying to attack the, Corinthian, uh, the Colossian church with, that were leading them away from Christ. What were some of those heresies? These are the heresies that the Colossians had to face. Number one, regulations of food, drink, and festivals. There were perhaps some Jewish believers, uh, people who felt like the new believers, they needed to follow the law of the Torah. They had to eat kosher diet. They couldn't eat certain animals or certain organisms. They had to follow certain festivals or do certain rituals that Jews had to do. The other one, the next one, is asceticism, self-made religion. This is the idea of intense self-discipline. You have to restrict yourself from all these things. You have to deny everything. You can't live a normal life. You have to go to the extreme. And only then are you a real follower. A real believer. So there was this kind of heresy coming into the Colossian church. And then third one is worship of angel and visions. In that verse 18, he talks about worship of angels and these visions puffed up without reason. There were people who were saying, you have to have these experiences. 
If you haven't had these experiences, then you're not a real believer. That's not the true way of following Christ. For each of these heresies, we're not going to go in depth into each one, but for each of these heresies, Paul focused on one thing. It was Christ. Doesn't matter what kind of heresy it was. Paul's answer was, apply Christ into your life. Verse 17 in the New Living Translation, he says, For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Christ is the fulfillment of all things. Those old things, they're just shadows of things to come. Kind of like, ladies, like, would you want that fake Chanel purse or would you want that real Chanel purse? If you had a choice. I want that, don't, don't tell me, you're, I don't want that fake Chanel purse. I want to save money. If someone were to give it to you for free, of course you would pick the real one. Why would you pick the fake one? Those of you who like tech, if you had a choice between Apple and Android, of course you choose Apple, right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not trying to endorse Apple in any way. It's my personal opinion and preference, okay? Of course, if you have something that's better, that's real, you will never go to the thing that's fake, that only points to the real thing. So if there are things in our lives that we're constantly going to, that are just representations of Christ, why would we choose those things? Choose Christ. Choose Him. The second one, in verse 19 in the NLT, it says, For Christ holds the whole body together with His joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Some of the heresies was like, oh, these are these things that you have to do in order to grow to be like Christ. But what is Paul saying? He's like, no. Focus on Christ. If you focus on Christ, that's how everything is going to grow. Because Christ is the head. He holds the whole body together. And it's only as you know him, that's how God is going to grow everything. Don't think that you're going to do all these other things, these special things, and that somehow that's going to enable you to grow. It says you focus and you treasure Christ that much more in your life that's going to allow you to grow. Doesn't matter what the belief is, doesn't matter what the heresy, doesn't matter what anything is. Christ is over all. So what is Paul's now encouragement for us? Paul's encouragement, give us these, just take phrases from these first three verses. In verse 16, he says, let no one pass judgment. In verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. And in verse 20, it says, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Paul kind of like, at that point, he's like borderline frustrated. He's like, why are you doing this? And he says, let no one pass judgment. He's not saying like, oh, I guess you're just in the situation you are, so I guess what can you do? No. He's saying you can do something about it. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Is he saying, like, oh, uh, talk to the other person so that they don't disqualify you? No, he's saying, no, you do it. It's your responsibility. You can't just sit there and play the victim and say, oh, I guess uh, uh, this is where I am. I'm a sinful person, and I can't, I can't, I'm just locked in this thing, and so I, I can't do anything. No. You have the responsibility to put Christ on in every single aspect of your life. That's our responsibility. You cannot blame other people for why you feel obligated or overwhelmed if you have Christ. 
You cannot blame other things that are outside of your control because there are things that are in your control, your understanding of who Christ is, in your own mind, in your own heart. I think for some of us, it's still too abstract. I think for me, personally, I think one of the biggest struggles, one of the biggest lies that I believe is that somehow I still have to... Does it? <laughs> Sometimes I still need to somehow think that I need to perform well enough in order to know Christ or be a good Christian. And I just, oftentimes I have this anxiety. And I think even this past Friday, I think two days ago, I, I was just in my office and I was just so overwhelmed with work. And then like wedding planning is going on and there's like sermons I need to preach. And I'm just like, oh my God, my, my brain is going to explode. And I remember just sitting there like, it was just like a weird experience, like one of those out-of-body experiences. I was like looking at myself, and I was like, I can't think about anything right now. My mind was just blank. And I was like so overwhelmed, so anxious, I just feel like, I'm just here. I, don't, I just don't know what to do. And I think I realized I had been feeling that way for the last few days. And in that moment, I think something about the Alive Curriculum training class that we've been doing, I was like, abide, abide. <laughs> I was like, what? Abide. I was like, oh, man, you're right. I should abide, right? And in my mind, I was like, why haven't I been doing this? I was like, okay, let me abide. Like, God, I admit that I'm feeling anxious right now, overwhelmed. I admit that I don't believe in who you are, that like, I shouldn't worry about anything because my performance is not, my value is not based on my performance. And I'm believing that my value is from you because you've called me a son of God, that I've been purchased by your blood, and I want to pray for myself. And now I want to decide. I'm no longer being anxious. I'm going to whether it's like pray, or I'm going to reflect, and then I'm going to trust in you and express thanks, God, because you've been so good to me. And what I ended up doing was I took a nap, and it was great. It was, I loved it. <laughs> and it was through that I was abiding in my sleep horizontally. Um, and after that, I just felt calm. And as soon as I felt calm, I was like, God, why didn't I think of this earlier? And I was just like, man, God, this, this truth... This, this tool has been available to me this whole time. And I've been going through this for the last few days. Why have I not appropriated? Why have I not claimed this in my life earlier? I just realized that it's my responsibility. I, no one else can abide for me. I can ask for prayer. I can say, hey, can, can you pray for me? But they cannot abide for me. They can give me truth. They can remind me of who God is. But I need to be the one that does the abiding. And some of us, we still play the victim. Some of us, we, we give in to these, these heresies, these lies in our lives. And we let it play out for so long. And we never put our foot in the ground and say, no, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to turn to Christ. And I'm going to say, God, you are so much greater than any of these things in this world. And I never want to go back to them again. I think one thing I just wanted to mention, one, one lie that we oftentimes believe is that my faith, whether it's, my faith is, is private. And for me to share it with anyone is, is, is horrifying. I'm scared what they're going to think of me. I'm going to be considered lesser. That's not something I want to tell about other people. Whether it's like for baptism or in light of Easter as we're sharing and we're wanting to reach out to people. One thing I will say is faith is personal but never private. 
something deeply personal but never private. And until we're able to appropriate that truth of who God is, that we are son or daughter of God, that doesn't matter what anyone can say about us, that I would rather keep my soul than forfeit my soul for the whole world. God, that you're so precious to me, that your message is so good to me. Because it changed my life, I want to share it with other people. Until we appropriate that, then we're never going to be able to live out the life, that, the fullness, this new life that Christ has for us and be able to share it with someone else. And I'm hoping that as we look forward toward Easter, that our mentality isn't just like, oh, I just have to do this as an obligation. But it's, man, God, Christ, Christ has been so good. He is so preeminent. He is so amazing. He is so much bigger, higher, greater. He has cut off my sinful nature. I have been forgiven in him. I don't have to do anything in him or for him. But because he's been so good to me, I want to do all these things for him. That causes me to say, you know what? I want one more person to know what I know about Christ. That causes us to want to share our faith with other people as we look forward to Easter. And this is only possible because of who Christ is and what he's done. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, the ESV, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is saying, this is the gospel. That there's an element of, yes, we need to work things out. We need to be appropriating and believing that Christ is who he is and that influences how we make life choices and decisions every single day. But the amazing thing is that what? Not only are we working out these things, but it is God who works in us. Christ is the one who did that first work. He already gave you the new clothes. He already gave you the promises. He already gave you new life. You didn't have to do anything to earn that nor deserve it. In fact, you can't. And then it was when you realize God has sent Christ to die for us. He lived the perfect life. He was the perfect sacrifice so that he could forgive us. And now by faith as we believe that, and as he rose from the grave, now we have new life with him. And when we realize that, we internalize that, we understand it deeply, that's when we're going to be able to live out this new life that Christ has for us. That's why the one thing for us this morning is stop living a life that doesn't reflect how Christ made us alive. Stop living a life that doesn't reflect how Christ made us alive. I want to give us three next steps for us to apply this practice in our lives. The first one is make sure you know how Christ made you alive. For some of us, this might be the first time we're hearing it, talking about our sinful nature being cut off, that we have new life because of who Christ is and what he's done through baptism. Maybe this is the first time we realize, oh my gosh, I am forgiven. I don't have to do anything. I thought I had to do all these things. All my life I've been taught through church I have to do X, Y, and Z in order to be a good Christian. And if this is the first time, then what I want to encourage you to do is make sure you know, you understand it inside and out. If you don't know, if you don't, still don't understand it, then talk with someone in your life group. Talk to your leader. Go research online. Do something so that you understand what it is that Christ did. I don't encourage you, don't just go off Colossians. There's so many other passages in the Bible. Look at the book of Romans. Just, it's a, an amazing, logical essay. I know you don't want to read an essay right now, but 
It's an amazing logical explanation of what Christ did and how we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness because of the life that Christ has lived for us. Make sure you know how Christ made you alive. For some of us, we've been doing church for a long time. We need to revisit this. We need to realize there are some truths that either we've forgotten or we've just suppressed. And we need to revisit. We need to know these truths. If you don't even know it in your head, there's no way it's going to go into our hearts. Number two, measure everything in your life with Christ. Measure everything in your life with Christ. What I mean by this is take everything that you're doing in your life, put it against Christ, and see how it comes up. And I was just thinking, I was like, wouldn't it be so cool if we had this little device called like a Christometer? <laughs> like every time that we were doing something that was not in line with Christ, it would kind of like beep and buzz at you. Like, no, 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 not, not Christ, not Christ, not Christ, you know? It would be super annoying, but like it would be really helpful. You know, every time you get anxious, you know, you're not in Christ right now. Measure everything. I said earlier that we're functional atheists is because the process of becoming more like Jesus is in every area of your life believing who he is to be true in each of those areas in our life. Maybe you believe Christ is real in your life for church life, but maybe you don't believe it for your work life. Maybe you don't believe it for your family life. Maybe you don't believe it for your school life. Maybe you don't... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. Maybe you don't believe it for your friendships. There are different areas of your life that we're still functionally atheists. And so I want you to measure. And one practical way of doing this is just journal every single day. Just write down, what are the things that happened in my life today? And did I do it in light of Christ, or was I doing it out of my sinful nature? Just, just see it. And once you observe it, then you're able to actually take some action and say, God, I want to abide in those moments. I want to trust in you. Last thing is minister to others as we look toward Easter. I already mentioned this earlier, but as we're focused on Christ, let's look toward Easter. Let's look toward Jesus. Let's look toward the resurrection and say, God, because you are who you say you are, I want to do everything that I can so that one more person can know about your love. Can we stand together? We'll close out with some worship. As we, um, as we close out and as we worship, I think for these messages, and for many of us, it's, it's like it's nothing new. It's not the first time you heard Christ. In fact, if you probably add up all the number of times I said Christ in the sermon, it's like, oh, there's so many. <laughs> I think the real challenge for us is actually living it out. Saying, I want to make Christ the center of every single thing that I do. Every moment that I live. That's the hard part. It's not just saying it in our minds, but it's actually believing it day to day. And if that's the hardest part, the way that I want us to respond is just begin thinking. Even to this past week, sometimes you need to look at the past to be able to change things for the future. Just think about this past week and all the moments that happened, all the emotions, all the stresses, anxieties, times that we were overwhelmed, times that we were afraid, sad, happy, thankful, burdened. 
And I want you just to begin to do an inventory. God, how is Christ present in my life? What does it look like for Christ to be the truth that I live out of in that moment? Maybe you realize you were really anxious before that big presentation. One way that Christ could be relevant in that moment is, you know what, God? Because Christ, you've forgiven me. Because you've loved me, because you've given me eternal life, then no matter how this goes, I know I'm your child. I know I'm secure. I know you've forgiven me for falling short. So I want to trust in you. It's just one simple prayer, one simple sharing that we can lift up. Could be, God, I was angry at my child. I, I, I didn't speak words of truth. But God, you've forgiven me. You, you died on the cross for me. And for me to be frustrated and unforgiving to this person is hypocrisy. Lord, forgive me. And, and I realize you have forgiven me because of your death on the cross. So allow me to then forgive. Let me to be, help me to be patient. I know that I can be patient because you've given me this spirit nature. I'm no longer bound to this sinful nature. I now have this new life. I could be forgiving. Just lift up that simple prayer. Can we do that? Just think to the last week. Just do an inventory. And just ask yourself, what are some moments that we needed to apply Christ? And how can we do it? And just pray that prayer right now. Even though it was in the past, it's never too late to pray that prayer to say, God, I want to make it all about you. Can we just do that as we respond? Let's just do that for a couple moments.